When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I woke up when I was pushing the hat pin into his eye. What? What are you talking about? Are you saying you attacked Malcolm with a needle? Not a needle. A hat pin. It's bigger, duller, but it still went to his face very easily. Why? Why, in God's name, why? Because he asked me to. I first heard about the play called The Shadowed Sea from an old drama professor of mine. He was famous for throwing parties every few months. Sometimes it was a sprawling barbecue, at other times a more intimate dinner party with just himself, his wife, and a handful of his favorite students invited. For a few months in 2008, I was among that group. Me and my best friend Frida were over there one night when he started telling us about forbidden plays. Most of it was typical stuff. Oscar Wilde's Salome, and for religious reasons. Arthur Miller's The Crucible, for political ones. But that wasn't what people really wanted to hear about. This was stuff for a classroom debate when you wanted to look smart to impress your teacher or the hot girl sitting next to you. But when you were a little tipsy and with friends, and the night had grown late and dark, it was easier to set aside some of that bullshit posturing and be honest. And the truth was, you didn't care about some book that was banned for offending someone or to squelch some contrary ideology. You wanted to know about books that were truly forbidden, plays that were not just taboo, dangerous. In the lights, it sounded like a silly thing to ask. How could a play or a book be dangerous? Was it supposed to be like the Necronomicon or something? Stuff like that wasn't real. Even in the glow of our professor's attention and brandy, none of us seemed willing to cross the line from tales of literary scandal to ghost stories around his fireplace. All of us except Freda. So, have you ever heard of an evil play? Like, not something people think is bad, but a play that actually... hurts people? A couple of the others snickered, but a hard glance from Frida shut them up. She was usually very laid back, but when she got that serious, intense look, nothing would back her down. The professor seemed to pick up on this too, and he didn't take the question as a joke. 
Instead, he sucked in a slow breath as he raised an eyebrow. That's an interesting question. A strange and interesting and very specific question. Did you have something specific in mind? Frida gave a short shake of her head as she shrugged, her eyes never leaving his. Not specific. I've just heard rumors. I noticed how tense the man had been as some of that tension left him with a small laugh. Ah, about cursed plays. Well, you know how superstitious act... She cut him off. Not cursed. Evil. Dangerous. Like people have died trying to perform it. The professor looked irritated as he glanced away. Well, no doubt there are plays that have foolhardy stunts or effects that have led to accidents and... He glanced at his wife as she put her hand on his arm. I think she's asking about... What is it? You know the one that you told me about that time years ago? She offered the rest of us an apologetic smile. Sorry. I enjoy seeing you all perform, but I don't read plays constantly like him. Glancing back, she favored her husband with a questioning look. Maybe you should tell them about it. Warn them. Grimacing, he shifted in his chair. It's nothing that requires a warning. Nothing so dramatic as that. And it's not as though you'd ever find a copy anyway. It doesn't exist anymore, if it ever did. He let out a sigh and looked back at Frida. <sighs> there is a play, or there once was, called The Shadowed Sea. Supposedly, it... Well, I would say it's cursed, but supposedly it drove people insane that read it. Caused them to do strange things. Hurt themselves and others, that kind of thing. He looked back at his wife sulkily. Bunch of silly shit, if you ask me. Frida just stared at him, but my curiosity was piqued now. Who wrote it? And when? He shrugged. No one seems to know the author, though it first seemed to pop up in America in the 1920s, maybe? It's just like a good old campfire tale. Conspicuously vague, so you can't fact check it. Grinning at his joke, I went on. Didn't you ever see it? Ever read it? The professor had been returning my smile, but all expression died on his face as he began to go pale. No. I... I saw it once. Or something that purported to be that, but... No. Never read it. I never would. Frida leaned forward, her eyes dark and shining. What happened to it? Do you know what happened to the copy you saw? When he answered, he looked so old and tired, as though he'd aged a dozen years in the span of five minutes. 
I... I burned it. He held her gaze for several moments, almost in defiance, it seemed. And then he looked back toward the fireplace. I think it's time for all of you to go. Father's different since he returned. You know he is. Mary Gold does not turn from where she works preparing the evening meal, but she does stop cutting for the moment. Your father was lost at sea for months. He had to do things to survive and... Well, we have no idea what all he's seen. We don't know because he won't tell us. He keeps secrets from us. You know it's true. Marigold does turn around now, one arm still back on the counter as she gestures a red-stained knife toward her son. He will share more as he deems he should, and you should mind your tongue. A look passes between them and both Marigold and Evan break into uncontrollable laughter. The spell is broken when Marigold's other hand is jerked and she frowns back in the direction of the counter. Not looking back to Evan, she gestures him over with the knife. Come hold your sister's legs. If the knife slips, it could spoil the meat. After school, I tried to keep in touch with all my friends, but over the years, many fell away without me even noticing. The one that I really missed was Frida. There had been a time when... I thought we might end up as more than friends, but around the time of that dinner party, she began to grow strange and distant. We still spend time together through the rest of school, but there was this background hum of tension most of the time. Her mind was elsewhere, and I could never seem to fully bring her back. By graduation, I felt like I was saying goodbye to a stranger. That didn't keep me from mourning the loss of our friendship, though. And over the years, I did try to find her and reconnect, though I never had any luck. She wasn't on the internet that I could find, and the few mutual acquaintances we still had were as clueless as about where she'd went as I was. Still, over a decade later, hardly a day went by when I didn't think about her. That's when I got a large yellow envelope with her cramped, uneven writing on it. I was more excited that it was from her than anything that might be inside. I turned the envelope over in my hands, nervous excitement creeping across my belly like I was opening an admission letter or maybe some long-awaited medical result. The envelope wasn't huge or heavy, but there was definitely something thick inside of it. Maybe a long letter detailing what she'd been up to or some pamphlet from a cult she joined that needs new members. That was the thing. I was anxious to hear from her, but I was also nervous about what that would actually look like after so many years of being who knew where. I glanced at the clock. Allison would be home in just a few minutes, and while I didn't plan on hiding whatever this was from her, I did want to open it while I was still alone. Sucking in a breath, I tore it open and reached inside. The first thing I removed was a small scrap of paper with Frida's handwriting again. It just said, I finally found it. Frowning, I reached back into the envelope to pull out the other item inside. It was a small book with a weathered cover of faded blue. It 
On the back, there were a couple of spots that were worn to white. Near the spine, there was a small reddish stain as well. But no summary or other sign of what the book was. Turning to look at the front, I could barely make out the ghosts of letters spread across a patch of darker blue. I twisted into the light until I was able to read out the words. The Shadowed Sea. I felt a wave of fear and sadness roll through me. I'd always known, hadn't I? We'd never talked about it back then, but I'd always known that after that dinner party that Freda's strangeness seemed connected to that stupid, evil play. The way she'd talk about it that night was only part of it. I'd seen her doing research, taking odd phone calls, and a part of me had suspected that she had some weird obsession with it. I think I told myself that she'd eventually get tired of chasing some silly literary urban legend. But the truth was, I'd been afraid to ask. Afraid that if I pushed the issue, she'd cut me off more than she already had. And now? Now I was holding whatever this was. In real or fake, the thing it really represented to me was that the woman that had once been my best friend had probably slowly gone off the deep end, wasting years on this instead of living her life made me unbearably sad, but more than that, it made me feel guilty. Maybe if I hadn't been such a coward, I'd been a better friend. I would have stepped in and helped her before it consumed her. Sighing, I thumbed through the pages of the book. It was definitely a play of some kind. The formatting was right, and while I didn't really read any of it, I glanced enough to see the characters' names. John, Marigold, Maria, Evan, Peter, Valerie. It didn't mean it was the real deal, of course, and even if it was, who cared? My eyes fell back on the envelope. Frida had just put her name, no address, but there was a postmark. And while it was smudged, I was pretty sure it said Phoenix, Arizona. At least that was a start. When Allison got home, I told her about the envelope from an old school friend. That she'd sent me an obscure play without any real explanation, and wasn't that a funny and odd thing for someone to do? I didn't tell her that I thought Frida needed help and I was going to try and find her. Or that once upon a time, I thought I'd loved her. I didn't tell her that the play was supposed to be cursed, or that anything was wrong, because at the time, I didn't know there was. Not until the next day, when I found Frida. Police are still investigating the double murder and suicide in Chandler, Arizona that occurred on May 27th. Officers first responded to a complaint of gunfire at a local residence, and after receiving no response, they breached the front door and entered to do a welfare check. Inside, they found six-year-old Judith Sebring dismembered, as well as her father and well-respected businessman, Tony Sebring. Mr. Sebring had been stabbed repeatedly in the neck and face, and initial reports are saying that some kind of object, perhaps knitting needles, had been left in his eyes. It wasn't until a few minutes later that police located the suspected perpetrator of these horrific crimes, Frida Sebring, 
wife and mother of the victims. She was found in an upstairs closet, apparently the victim of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police say that this investigation is ongoing, and if you have any information pertaining to these tragic crimes, you are encouraged to come forward. I felt my gorge rise as I reread the article. It happened the day after the postmark on the envelope. Had she really mailed the play and then went home and murdered her family and then herself? The world seemed dark and drowned out around me as I left work and headed home early. None of this could be real, could it? And if it was, how much of it was my fault? Part of me wanted to say none of it, but was that true? Could I have stopped whatever cancerous insanity was growing inside of her if I would just confronted her back when it was starting? Or if not stopped it, at least pushed her in the direction of getting help? Maybe not, but my lack of certainty terrified me. Pulling in the garage, I went inside and sat down. I wanted to talk to Allison about it, part for confession and part for comfort, but I knew it would be hours yet before she was home. I moved restlessly around the house before finally winding up in the kitchen. That's when I saw the note on the fridge. Be out for a while. Made you some meatloaf. Eat it while it's fresh. The reminder made me realize how hungry I was, despite everything. I heated up a slab of meatloaf and wolfed it down while standing in the kitchen, as I was still too jumpy to want to sit down for long. I was about to head back to the living room when I noticed the blue book sitting on the window ledge above the kitchen sink. The Shadowed Sea. This wasn't where I'd left it. I'd put it back in the envelope and left it in the entry hall last night, hadn't I? I picked it up and flipped through it again. Had Allison gotten it and started looking at it? I saw a page with the corner turned down and I moved to it. Valerie opens the small wrapped package, salt spilling out across her hands into the floor as she does so. Her expression turns from one of curiosity to one of horrors as she realizes what lay at its center. A small, very human-looking tongue. Oh. Oh, God. There's a moment. Just a moment. Where she starts to back away in revulsion. This is all too much for her. Too horrible. Then her eyes fall on the book she's been reading. In an instant, her troubles seem forgotten, or perhaps some great joy or truth is remembered. Regardless, her face clears like the swift passing of storm clouds on a cold, dark sea, and the smile that breaks across her face is not just beautiful, but beatific. Yes. Oh yes, he'll understand. He will. 
When it's all done, he will. With a hurried breath, she gently clasps the tongue and heads to the kitchen, eager to prepare his final meal. Once there, she set work to grinding, not only the meat she'd been provided. A chill of intuition shot through me as I sat the book down and went to the trash can. Near the top, I found an envelope similar to mine. Same color, same cramped handwriting across the middle, same postmark other than being a day later. The inside of the envelope, however, had plastic wrapping still coated with a thin rime of what looked like salt. Reeling back, I looked around for my phone, even as it began to buzz. Do you enjoy your meatloaf, honey? What did you do? Did she send you something? I just read that lovely place she sent. It really is wonderful. And as soon as I was done, I heard the mailman driving away. It all made sense by then. I know this sounds strange, but did you feed me someone's tongue? More than that. You must not have read enough or you'd know. And if you just read the whole play, you'll understand. I promise, sweetheart. I picked up the play and found where I'd left off. Grunting, Valerie uses her rolling pen to grind down the thin goblet into a powder of razor-sharp glass. It must be invisible to the eye and untraceable to the tongue. So fine will it be mixed into her lover's meal. Only when it is in his belly will it slip free, a million diamond teeth eating him from the inside. <laughs> I love him so. I threw down the play and tried calling Allison but got no answer. When I texted her back, she finally did reply, but just with one text over and over. Song of my soul, my voice is dead. I thought about going to a hospital, but at first I felt fine. It was all a misunderstanding, and I was overreacting, and maybe if I read more of the play, I really would understand. So, I've been moving through it as I write this. At first it was just confusing and strange, but I'm starting to see how it all fits, how exciting this all is. My stomach's killing me now, but I think it's the anticipation of seeing what will happen next. But I'm sorry. I need to go. I'm feeling very tired now, almost as though I'm starting to slow down. And I have to get back to the Shadowed Sea. I'd never forgive myself if I didn't see how it... Yesterday, I buried my grandfather. He'd been gone for a long time now, or at least mentally. We were ready for it, though it still stung when we heard the news of his passing. I guess you can never really be prepared. I still remember his 100th birthday, and the blank look he gave his cake as though he'd forgotten the very concept of birthdays. But this isn't a story about my grandpa's dementia. 
This is a story about why I bought him the cheapest, thinnest wooden coffin on the market, and why I know it's what he'd want. Years ago, long before his diagnosis and before he showed any signs of it, he used to sit me on his lap as a child and tell me stories about his youth. He'd tell me benign things, like how he used to work for his dad's farm growing up, about the hardships his family faced, about his first love, about how he had to hide who he loved or risked being lynched, about his time fighting in World War II. The latter of which my parents didn't think was appropriate for a child, but Grandpa Jedediah would huff away their worried looks and protective protests and would declare... The past needs telling. Children younger than him have lived war, so don't hide it. The sentiment, unfortunately, was that his stories couldn't hurt me, bearing some nightmares here and there, and so Grandpa would share most of his war tales. Except for one. A story I knew existed because he'd periodically mention it in passing, but he'd always go quiet and mumble that he'd tell me when I was older. I'd hear snippets here and there, talk of warm summer night, of candlelight, of bodies on a battlefield, and something in the dark. It wasn't until the Halloween after... I turned 15 that he finally told me what happened. I think he used Halloween as a shield in case the story frightened me too much. He'd be able to laugh and say he invented it to spook me. And while he tried to do just that, we both knew it was as real as the fingers typing these words to you today. While I don't have my grandfather's storytelling skills, I'll relay the best of my ability the events that transpired that night. Events which prompted me to buy him the cheap wooden casket he now sleeps in. It was the summer of 1943, and Grandpa Jedediah was fighting in Italy. It was his first time out of his country and his first time in battle. He'd been dropped into the thick of it. Part of reinforcements that seemed almost sacrificial in nature. He described his battalion as throwing bodies at the problem. But he did his best. He wove through the trenches and fired at the axis. In the daylight, he saw the horrors of war, the battleground littered with bodies and body parts. He still remembered the stench of death and sun-baked rot. The smell would subside over the course of the night. When morning came, there would be fewer bodies until hostilities commenced once more. He'd assumed both sides tried to collect their dead when they could. There was one thing that really bothered my grandfather. At night, they'd extinguish every single light from cooking fires to the smallest of candles. And at first, Grandpa thought they did it to hide their location. Grandpa was a brave man, but he was afraid of the dark. He was certain the German forces would use the cover of darkness to sneak into camp and slay each and every man. He was afraid he'd wake up just in time to see the barrel pointed at his face. 
and the bullet flying towards him. When he asked for a light, even a single candle, the other soldiers shot each other concerned looks. And no one, not a single solitary soldier, caved. So he was forced to sit in the trench, never feeling a moment of safety and twitching at every noise coming from above, of which there were a lot. He described an odd sound that would begin in the dead of night and would persist relentlessly until hours before daybreak. A sound like a dog chewing on a bone, a kind of slurping, gnashing sound that came from every direction and which filled him with a sinking feeling at the pit of his stomach. When he asked the others if they could hear it, they shot him that same concerned look and would shake their heads no, even though they clearly heard the sound. When I was too young for this story, Grandpa used to tell me the myth of Eros and Psyche, an old Greek tale about a woman who essentially married Cupid, but she wasn't allowed to see him. He'd only come to her at night, when it was too dark to make out his form. He'd be kind and give her everything she wanted, but she became desperate to see his face. She needed to know who she'd married. So one night, Psyche lit a candle and shone it in his face. She saw who he was, an incredibly handsome, godlike figure. And then, a doll of molten wax fell on his chest and woke him up. Furious about her betrayal, he left her, and for the rest of her life, she regretted not trusting her husband. She regretted lighting that candle and looking at what she knew she wasn't supposed to. My grandpa was psyche. Despite the fear in everyone's eyes, despite the hints peppered throughout the battlefield, despite all the missing bodies he assumed were retrieved by comrades at night, despite the mysterious abundance of bones where men had lay just a day before, despite the danger of signaling an enemy force, despite everything telling him not to look, not to light a candle. Grandpa did exactly that. He waited until the others were sleeping. He waited for the gnashing, gnarling sounds to begin. He waited for a night with a near full moon, and when he was certain no one was looking his way, he pulled out a single candle from his sock, lit it with a match, and peeked over the trench slowly and carefully, trying not to draw attention to himself despite his candlelight. What he saw in that field changed him. For years later, he'd wake up at night in cold sweats and screaming. He'd rave about them and how they were coming for him. For everyone. He eventually came to terms with what he saw, but sometimes in his post-diagnosis state, he'd have moments of clarity where he remembered faces and people, and he talked to us like he did back when I was young. And every so often, he'd suddenly look horrified, and I'm certain it was the memory of what he saw in that field coming back to the forefront of his mind. Without the hindsight, without memories of the therapy he'd gone through to help him cope, or any of the self-soothing 
techniques that had worked so well in the past. There were things there with the bodies. Dozens of human-like creatures crawling along the muddy ground with milky white eyes that reflected even the dimmest of lights. They scanned the dead, approaching some, ignoring others. They were pale and sickly looking, with visible ribs showing through their emaciated flesh. They were mostly bald, but for tendrils of hair that clung to their heads, greasy and rope-like. Their clothes were old, some recognizable as those soldiers in the First World War, others older still. Once they'd cherry-picked their prey, they knelt down and dug their teeth in, tearing away at the rotten flesh and swallowing it down like a tender snake. It's one thing to see friends, sometimes family, fall in battle. It's quite another to see them reduced to meat. My grandfather regretted lighting that candle. He suddenly understood the looks the other soldiers had exchanged. The scene crippled him with fear, yet he couldn't look away. Somewhere on the other side of the battlefield, Axis soldiers were huddling in their own trenches, likely feeling the same collective horror. If you wave off the vultures, you only make yourself a target, both to them and the enemy, though he somehow doubted that anyone on the other side would peek out of their trench for fear of confronting them as well. As soon as Grandpa was able, he lowered his head back into the trench, hands trembling. The soldier opposite him stared at him wide-eyed in a mix of condemnation and sympathy. He must have woken up sometime while Grandpa was looking. Grandpa Jedediah pursed his lips and blew out the candle. He told me once that over 82,000 soldiers went missing in action during the war. And while many were buried in mass graves, he's convinced many more fell prey to the ghouls. How many battles were fought? How many bodies have been laid out? Almost an offering. How many families would wonder whether their sons and fathers were still alive, never knowing they were long since digested in the bellies of these horrendous creatures? With time and counseling, Grandpa eventually came to change his views on what he saw that night, on how he felt about those creatures. He began seeing them as nothing more than maggots, as inevitable as any other unpleasantry in life. They'd probably been around since as long as humans had, waiting in the shadows for feasts of war. They never attacked the living. They waited for their meat to ripen. So after he told me the story, once I stopped shaking at the thought of humans being eaten just like zebras in a nature documentary, my grandfather requested one thing of me. Once he died, let nature take its course. Let them take him in dignity like they'd taken his fellow soldiers so that in death he could feel close to them again. As I stand on his grave tonight, 
I can hear the sounds of gnawing beneath the ground. It makes me nauseous. It fills me with dread. And in some weird, messed up way, it comforts me. This is what Grandpa wanted. This is life. This is death. And they're the cleanup crew. It was going to be my first Christmas alone, and it was shaping out to be a decent one. My partner had finally moved all their things out of the house, and I had some time off to really focus on getting everything decorated how I wanted it. I'd thrown up garland on every perceivable surface, stuck fake snowflakes to the windows. Hell, I even went outside and built a snowman. Stockings hung from the mantle of my boarded-up fireplace. Thing was defunct for decades before I took residency here, and various candles gave the house smells of pine, hot chocolate, and winter forest, whatever that's supposed to smell like. I was missing one vital piece of the puzzle, though. Christmas tree. After splurging on everything else, money was looking a little tight, so I opted for buying a tree online from my town's social media site. Just about everyone I knew around town and didn't know would socialize and set up plans on there, so I took a stab at getting straight to the point. Hey everyone, happy holidays. So, I've been decorating, but just remembered that I don't have a tree to put up in the house. I know, I should have probably thought of that, but it slipped my mind. I have about 80 to $100 to spend, so if you know someone who has an extra tree or want to give one up for a poor sap like me, I'd greatly appreciate it. This is the first Christmas I've had to myself, and I want it to be special. Thanks so much. I left my name and contact info at the bottom and hit posts before making one more mug of hot chocolate than turning on How the Grinch Stole Christmas. At some point, I dozed off and was woken up by my phone vibrating so much it managed to shake itself from my coffee table and hit the floor. The recognizable smack of the glass screen hitting hardwood wasn't the best thing to wake up to. Groaning to myself, I reached down and flipped it over, expecting the worst. Unfortunately, that's exactly what I got. Screen was smashed, and everything on it was impossible to make out past the broken glass. I pulled myself off the couch, headed to my office, tossing my phone to the counter as I did. I'd worry about it in the morning. Right now, I needed to let those close to me know that I'd be hard to reach for a few days. At least until I could get a new phone. Logging on to next door, I saw why my phone vibrated so much. I had 15 unread messages. Now, I wasn't a very popular person in town. I wasn't hated or anything, but I generally kept to myself. It was strange to see that little 15 hovering over the messages tab. It was even stranger when I clicked on it and saw that they were all from the same person. Scrolling to the top, I saw the message had started friendly and, for lack of a better word, normal. They politely asked if I'd be able to meet them at their home and get their tree, and they were asking for the full 100. It wasn't really what I wanted to see. But Christmas was closing in, and as I scrolled through the other messages, 
I could see this person really wanted this tree gone. Their messages became much shorter as they went on, and they even went on to say they'd give it to me for free. I just want it off my hands, they said. I wrote them back saying my praises and told them I'd be by some time tomorrow to pick it up. After that was sent, I saw they logged off. The exchange was strange, but I assumed they just didn't have the room for it and needed it gone. After that, I messaged my parents and best friend to let them know I was going to be more or less MIA for the foreseeable future. With my phone smashed and Christmas just days away, being able to get a new one wasn't going to be easy. It'd likely be past the new year before I could get one delivered, and the weatherman was calling for a pretty serious snowstorm around Christmas through to the end of the year. It seemed like I was going to have to meet this person early and stock up on food for a while so I turned in for bed after cleaning up the house. Pulling up to the house felt odd, though I can't quite put a finger on why. I was worried that I wouldn't have been able to find it, given that most of the houses in the subdivision looked the same, but when I pulled into the cul-de-sac and saw the giant Christmas tree box sitting near their garbage can, I took the hint. I got out of the car, and halfway up their driveway, someone poked their head out the door. Hey! The suddenness of it startled me and I nearly jumped out of my skin. When the young man saw he had my attention, he yelled from the door, never leaving the house. Just grab it and go. There's no need to chit-chat. I don't have the best eyesight, but even from where I was standing, I could see the deep bags under the man's eyes. From scouting his profile on social media, I found that he was my age, late 20s, but the unkempt beard, greasy, thinning hair made him look much older. Are you sure you don't want... He slammed the door, sending the wreath that hung from it to the steps below. Weird fella, I thought. I loaded up the tree, just barely squeezing it into the backseat of my Focus and drove away. As I did, I took one more look at the house through my rear view saw the man staring through his blinds. I'm sure you thought I couldn't see him, but his stained fingers had a stark contrast to the white blinds. Trying to shake off the idea of just leaving it there instead, I pressed on the pedal and headed into town to pick out a few sets of ornaments. I needed to be excited about finally getting into the Christmas spirit. The tree was a classic dark green, so I opted for white ornaments and lights. I didn't want to do anything fancy or gaudy, even though I was going to be the only one looking at it. I brewed some peppermint mocha decaf, threw some comfier clothes on, and with Alf playing in the background, I got to work. Nearly two hours later, I was finished and pleased with it. I supposed I decorated as well as any other straight guy could. All the lights on it were working, the ornaments caught them nicely. The only thing I needed now was a tree skirt and some presents. I lived alone, sure, but I figure I can buy some things for family and keep them there until the big day just to fill the space. I kept the tree's lights on, but turned out all the other lights in the house before heading off to bed satisfied with what I'd accomplished that day. I kept that strange interaction with the seller in the back of my mind, though. As I closed my eyes to sleep, I couldn't help but see him staring out that window at me. It spooked me beyond reason. 
I'm sure he was just an eccentric guy, but the interaction still felt off. I pulled up Hulu on the TV and put on the latest season of Bob's Burgers. I needed some kind of white noise to drown out my racing thoughts. Before I knew it, I was asleep. The noise that woke me up is hard to describe. It was a scraping sound, for sure, but I couldn't help but pick up on the thudding that came along with it. It was rhythmic as well. Thud. Scrape. Thud. Scrape. The more I listened, the more that thud became familiar. An old friend of mine grew up with a family that raised and raced horses. It was the thudding of a hoof. That realization sent a chill through my body so intense it felt as if my bones had froze in place. Maybe they had, because I was sure from the moment my eyes opened, I had moved an inch. The thud scrape continued through the house, but I couldn't pinpoint where it was until it stopped for a second and a new sound came about. The popping shatter of a cheap glass ornament hitting the floor. It's in the living room, I thought. Choosing to refer to the thing tearing up my tree as it was involuntary, but it scared me even more. I wanted to believe that it was some crazy, pissed-off, anti-Christmas burglar, but in my heart of hearts, I knew that wasn't the case. People didn't have hoofs. I must have laid there for 30 minutes listening to that thing smash ornament after ornament before I finally decided I was going to do something. I had a small Beretta handgun in the top of my closet. I'd never taken it out since I bought it, but I was well enough shot that I could scare off whatever was in my house and not shoot my foot off in the process. I slid out of bed like a snake shedding skin and I tiptoed to the closet. I grabbed the gun, loaded it, and stepped out in the hallway, checking both sides before I went. Seeing nothing, I continued on, heading to the living room. Peeking around the corner, I saw it. The seven-foot tree looked like a sapling next to the abomination that was in my house. It was hunched over, trying its best to pick apart the tree, almost like it was looking for something. It had massive hands, long and bony, that moved with precision and a certain type of grace. But the ends of those fingers were long nails, so sharp they glimmered in the glow of the lights on the tree. Its body, from the waist up to the neck, was built like a man and not a particularly well-built one. Its stomach was puffed out and large, but it didn't look fat. It looked bloated like a carcass that had been left to rot on the side of the road. The bottom half of this creature started at the floor and stretched halfway up the tree. Its legs were backwards, its kneecaps jutting out behind it, and its feet, as I'd come to expect, were hoofed. They were 
covered in mud and something else wet and dark that caught the light and glistened. Its right hoof, though, was broken, split in half, and from it dripped a thick black liquid. Its head, only inches from the tree as it investigated, sported two horns. They sprouted from the monster's forehead and curled back, coming all the way back around before digging into its eyes. The socket stripped a black liquid similar to what was coming from the hoof. Just under the eyes, a long snout, not unlike that of a pig, protruded out and wiggled as it sniffed the tree in the air around it. It had a mouth, though the bottom jaw was missing, causing its tongue to droop and writhe back and forth as it investigated the tree further. I expected its mouth to be dripping in the same fashion of its hoof and eyes, but instead the tongue was dried up and shriveled like an orange peel left in the sun. In that moment, taking a better look at the eyes, I realized this thing, whatever it was, was totally blind. All I had to do was get one clean shot on it. It froze. Something had caught its attention, and as it turned its head to me, I figured it was I that had done so. That thud, scrape, started again as the thing started coming to me. It was inches from me now, its rotting, shriveled tongue reaching out and scraping across my face like sandpaper. Its claw-like nails teased the area around my belly button until eventually I felt a hot pain just left of it. I felt the blood trickle down, only stopped by the elastic waistband of my sweats. In that moment, my fight-or-flight kicked into gear, and I pulled the gun up, shoving it into the abdomen of the creature, and fired. It threw me against the wall and flailed back itself, knocking the ceiling van down and smashing my table as it went. I thought it was screeching at first, and maybe it was, but all I could hear was the ringing in my ears caused by firing the gun at such a close range. In the process of regaining my bearings, I saw the creature burst through the bay window and crawl its way up my house. I passed out a few moments later. When I came to, the room around me was bright. I was in a hospital. Before I had a chance to take it all in, a police officer was standing over me, a notepad in his hand. Alright, kid. You awake? I moved my head as much as I could in an attempt to say yes, though to be fair, even if I would have said no, I assume he would have still asked me questions. The questions he did ask helped me piece together what they thought took place. The working theory at the moment was that someone had broken into my house, trashed the place, and I acted in self-defense. That was pretty clear, given I nearly bled out. What wasn't so cut and dry, though, was my connection with a murder that night as well. A young guy, a hermit, had been killed just a few hours before my encounter with the robber. It was the same guy I'd gotten my tree from. Apparently, his head had been smashed in, though they couldn't determine what had done it. A hoof, most likely, I thought, but kept it to myself. 
I explained my relation to the guy and told him all about the strange interaction we had, saying that I never had a chance to see the guy fully. He seemed to believe me, and as far as I know, it has been written off as a strange coincidence. It was last week. Today, Christmas Eve, has been a hell of a ride itself. I finally got to go back home after staying with my parents for a few days, while my bay window was being replaced. It was nice seeing them, but when I got back just a few hours ago, I contemplated going right back. Around the entire perimeter of my house was a trail of prints. Not just any prints. On one side, there were hoof prints. Beside those was a deep gouge in the ground. Almost as if something very heavy had been dragged across it over and over again. 